So we've been talking about how to study the Bible, and uh, I think there's handouts somewhere at the back. Is there handouts anywhere? Yes, there are. And we should be on lesson three. So if you've been here, I think we just started uh, last week, maybe two weeks ago. So we've been talking about, you know, kind of some different um, postures and uh, just ways, things that are important. We, we uh, alliterated them. Right? Receive, read, reflect, and relate. Remember that? Receive, uh, read, reflect, and relate. So when we want to interpret scripture, we want to have that posture that we're going to receive. Uh, then we're going to talk about how to read the scriptures, how to reflect on them. I thought I, I, had, I thought of a quote last week that I was going to share with you, which is kind of a, a helpful... Um, reminder of what, how the posture of receiving. All right, we must receive the word as it stands, meaning that we have to decide beforehand that what the word says, whatever the word says to us, that that's what's going, we're going to accept. And one uh, thing that we talk about sometimes when we talk about receiving things that are difficult, um, sometimes there's a discussion about like the creation account. Is it was it literally seven days and this and that? And um, what about science? Right. And so there's a an interesting uh, quote by someone who also has a similar position that we must receive from science, um, but it's kind of from the opposite perspective, so I'll go ahead and read it to you. It says, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of its failures to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods or institutes of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we're forced by our a priori, or ahead of time adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And so there are people um, that have a very equally adamant rejection that say, no matter what, we are going to receive something, and our interpretation will not ever have any supernatural in it. And it's from that starting point that they reach their conclusions. And so many times when we get in interpretation, we're addressing an application where there may be an underlying assumption, beginning starting point that we have. And so when we come to the scriptures and we're having a discussion about Accepting the word as it is, that's a, a crucial step that we don't want to miss. Start okay. So um, we are on, we talked about receiving, all right? Then we went to, we're on page, I believe it's three. Three. Yes. Reading, reading. So Ezra 710. Someone read Ezra 710 there. set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Yeah. So he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Not just to read the word, but to, to study it. Okay. And so we're kind of in that where we said we must read and observe and what it says. So just let's brainstorm. What are some things, what's the difference between maybe reading and study. I think reading um, it's like it's almost like you just read it once to kind of get the plot, the gist. Mm -hmm. Studying I think is more of a dissection and analysis where you might go back and look at it different ways poke and prod it a little bit more, mm -hmm. slow down. Mm -hmm. 
normally when you study something, you are trying to get retention of it. Mm -hmm. So if you're reading something, if I read a magazine or an article, I might remember some things from it, but if I study it, I'm going <coughs> to glean a lot more from it. Mm -hmm. Studying takes more effort than just reading. How so? Can you elaborate a little bit? Like, what what are you spending your efforts doing and studying that maybe we don't do when we, when we read? Anyone can contribute. simple one is looking at the definition when you're reading. Maybe there's a word you don't understand. Mm -hmm. You just look to the context to get an idea. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're studying, you're going to be like, what does that word mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <coughs> I, think so. I think study encompasses more than just reading. So going off what Pastor was saying, um, you're kind of, it could be more interdisciplinary and in nature than just Mm -hmm. bringing in methods that you've learned through your experience and utilizing them to understand what it's saying better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that good? Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just sharing ideas. <laughs> just sharing ideas. I'm not going to deduct any pastor points. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, what do you guys think? Are there times when we... Uh, read the scriptures and we're not necessarily studying them. Are there times where we're studying it more than reading? I think there have been times when I went in and I, I set out to read God's word mm -hmm. like, to give a, a broad scope. And I, those times I usually cover like a, a bigger section mm -hmm. of scripture to right. get the, the big idea. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes in study you're very narrowly focused on a word or a verse or a passage. And to be fair, sometimes the broad scope is part of a bigger process mm -hmm. of, of study. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. That's good. I know when I haven't, you know, set my goal on studying, but more reading. Like what she was saying, um, that like if there's parts that I don't understand as well, it's like oh, it bothers me. Okay, but like I, I still want to read the rest of this. Yeah, so, I mean, we see that they're related and that studying always involves reading, right? Although there may be times where we're reading without the intent purpose of um, studying anything in particular, right? And so when Ezra devoted his heart to it, right, he set his heart, focused his mental faculties. He wanted to consider what was being said, to understand it, and to, we started to hit on it, internalize it. Um, we see there after it says, set a start to study the Lord and what? Practice. Practice it and teach it, right? So I think you guys, uh, if you've ever taught somebody how to do anything, right? You, and when you teach someone something, you generally have a better understanding of it than the first time you, you learned it or, or understood it, right? And so... When we place ourselves under the authority of Scripture, we're going to apply exegesis. And we've talked about exegesis versus eisegesis, where we allow the Bible to speak, and it involves not only setting aside our agenda or bias, but we have this golden rule that we're going to it, not trying to bring what we can make it say, right? but allowing it to say what it meant originally. A text cannot mean what it never meant. That's kind of the negative way. Right? Text can never mean what it could not have meant to the original readers or all. So let's think back. We've talked about some of the things before this in terms of the literal, historical, grammatical. Like, what were some things that we would do when we approach a text to discover how, what it meant to the original author writing to the original recipient? Please remember some of those things. That's a good start, right? Who wrote it and who was it written to? So we identify those people. That's good. And how would that how would that maybe make a difference? Let's just kind of dig in that for just a second. 
how would a different author or different audience impact the way we understand what it could mean? What are other things that the author has said to these people or to other people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their style? Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. You know who the author is and who if this book that you need to know why the author wrote it to those particular people yeah. or that person. Exactly. So the purpose, right? Why were they writing this? And so some of the books we have are letters, right? Written from one author as a letter to a group of believers. Um, what are some other purposes we have of different books of the Bible? You touched it on there with um, two believers. So letters addressed to believers might be applied differently and look different to, say, interactions with if you have an interaction with someone you, that may not be a believer and mm -hmm. necessarily applied in those situations. Mm -hmm. or that informs how you approach that. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about an audience of unbelievers, so there may be times where we see uh, dialogue, for example, in the Gospels, where Jesus is interacting with not just those who are disciples, but those who, the crowds, okay, those are around. Yeah. It also places it in the story of salvation, so it's different from Paul writing to Christians in Rome, mm -hmm. it's going to be different than Moses writing to Israel in the wilderness. Right, yeah. They're looking at very different history of what's happened, what they're aware of, um, and their their own experiences and what's been passed down in terms of, you know, many times Moses talks to them as if, you know, you were here or your father saw the miracles. You were in the wilderness. And so he's using that imagery to help explain. And uh, one of the things about reading is that one of the things I want to focus on today is the observation aspect. So... One of the key components is to observe the text, right? And you're going to list out simply what it does and does not say. So oftentimes, right, we've got reading first. We're going to read it. And we want to interpret it, right? What does it mean? And oftentimes we skip over, right, this step where we actually study and observe, right? where we don't really take a second to make sure that we are paying careful attention to what it is exactly that we're reading. And so we, there can be some problems here if we interpret text and we thought it said something, but maybe it didn't quite say that far. Maybe we're saying it says more than that or less than that. So um, we're going to go back. We've been looking at a passage from Romans 1 uh, the last few times. And uh, Romans 1, 26, 27. And we're going to look at some questions that you should ask or could ask when you're interpreting a passage of Scripture. Okay. So I'll go ahead and read. This is our text, Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burdened their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So here are some questions that you can ask of the text. Number one, who are the principal actors? Right? Who do we see in this passage? How are they described? What did they do? Do we see any comparisons or any contrasts? How does the passage relate to uh, the previous and the preceding section? So what's before, what comes before this, what comes after this? Who wrote this? We've talked about. Who's the audience? We've talked about. How does this fit into the argument of the text? Right? How, why is this written in the specific place that it is? Uh, what do you not understand? Or what, do, what are you not sure of? Right? What questions need to be answered? Okay. Is there, and let's just pause here. Are there any other questions that sometimes in your own personal study you like to ask as you're looking at a passage? Um, I know few of you guys are at the, our Friday morning study and we always look for certain things when we're looking at text but what are some questions that you ask 
when you're studying a text? Is there anything that you would add to the list? Uh, what are repeated words or ideas? Mm -hmm. And why are those good to find? Because they'll help highlight an emphasis of the author. Yeah, and they give stress and emphasis, that's right. So, looking for repeated things. I know in the epistles we often talk about looking for are there what are the indicative things telling us things that are true versus what are the imperative things what are the things that we're being commanded to do um, those are good things to look for lists maybe kind of helps you see a train of thought there's like a progression or development of our argument yeah that's that's good so there's a lot of questions we can ask, and oftentimes that before, sometimes we want to say what the text means before we really pay attention to what it says. And so we want to kind of hold off. And uh, I remember going through practicing this at first, and a lot of times in my observation, I would say, well, it means it's saying, and that, well, maybe, but that's really an interpretation. So sometimes it's tempting to go to interpretation first. Um, and so as we've asked these questions, once we start asking these questions, we're going to have to reflect then upon what are the answers and what do they tell us about the text. Um, somebody want to read Nehemiah 813. I'll read it. Go for it. Nehemiah 813. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Yeah, so the key part there, right, it's gain insight, to peer into the nature of things. So we're looking for um, a deep and a profound understanding of the text, right? We're looking at it above and below, side to side, up and down. And to draw the full meaning. So we're trying to get as much as we can in terms of the full perspective. Where is this coming from? Who is writing it? Who are they writing it to? All of those parts. And to carefully draw out the full meaning. So in this case, we were talking about Ezra getting insight into the words of the law. And he's not... I think it's important that say, to say that... Um, if we do a correct study, we're not going to create something there that no one else could find. Like there's not meaning coming uniquely through us. We want to make sure that that meaning is coming from the text so that if another person is seeking to, um, you know, correctly interpret and read the scriptures, um, they're going to reach similar conclusions. And we'll talk about how those can maybe slightly differ from time to time. But reading can take five minutes. Mulling and reflecting can take... Uh, many hours, right? It moves beyond simple observation into this interpretation. And we start to formulate an understanding of what they mean. We start to put things together. Um, and so this is where the things we were talking about earlier. The historical context, far context, the near context, cultural background, and word studies. Um, when, when we talk about tools, so we've got the scriptures. Now, some of you guys um, may have a Bible... Like mine, where it's, it's just, I have mine that I read it at, at church a lot of times, it's just the scriptures. But what are some other tools besides the scriptures themselves that can kind of help us as we study? Things that you might commonly use or refer to. Blue Letter Bible. Yeah. <laughs> what are some things that Blue Letter Bible has that help, are helpful? I like the commentary section, the text commentary. You can go through see what other pastors or teachers have explained it. Or whatever section mm -hmm. also has whatever the meaning of a word was in the original, like, in the original mm -hmm. language. Yeah, so commentaries and then like uh, dictionaries. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I like, uh, sometimes I'll use it for, is usage. So if you see that word, not as it defined, but it gives you other places mm -hmm. right, where those words are used. Okay, and so. There's some other tools that you can refer to. Or What's that? Maps. Yeah. How far did he walk in that day? Or mm -hmm. How big of an area is he teaching in? Mm -hmm. 
when he says we're going here or we went there or refers to people in different regions, you can actually study those regions. Mm -hmm. Anything else? I don't know if this counts as a tool for other people, but my favorite tool is other believers. Other like believers. The process, the process of discussion. Yeah. I think so. We'll count it. I feel so used. <laughs> <laughs> the end was I love your fellowship, but I would also like <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think for me, um, sometimes just a study Bible, which can kind of oftentimes seek to balance and have some of these things added in there. And you've got like the scriptures on the top half and then lots of notes and yeah. guides and Sometimes they'll even refer you, you know, see this comment or see that comment about if you want to study more. I really enjoy, um, like, a Bible encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. So it has, like, articles on Jerusalem, the Ark, different people and genealogies. So it's been really helpful if you don't really know the background. Or And is that, are there, there's like, topical, is that what you refer to, or could you look up a city or you look up a... Yeah, it's just... Dictionary. Well, it's not a dictionary where it defines terms, but it's more articles. Like you can find every you know, James the Less or Judas. Mm -hmm. You can find people, cities, things like the tabernacle. Right. Often it has pictures, kind of explains certain things, gives you a survey of how it's used. And, you know, yeah. Where you see it in the Bible. Yeah. I know that this has changed a lot. I mean, uh, I remember just in a time where you had a concordance and it was like just a book yep. you look it up that's right and there's the number and then it would list out so it's definitely a lot faster now if you just can hit your phone and gave it. I think a case could be made for technology if used appropriately right so a lot of these things can be sped up using technology right you can uh, find them yeah. more quickly Okay, so let's, um, what we're going to do is kind of as a, as a case study, as a practice case, we'll kind of work through these questions as we look at the text. Okay, so if you're um, on the handout, we're going to look at those same questions there, uh, starting on page five. So um, we'll kind of work through, like, who are the principal actors, right? Who's in this text that we're referring to? God's there, yes. And? Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So we've got God, men, and women, right? Mm -hmm. so them and them can refer back to those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Um, That's not very. God gave them. Yeah, yeah he gave them. Gave them over for their women and their men. Okay. And then, so when we talk about how they are described, um, also what do they do, sometimes there's a little overlap in here, like there's actions, right? You're looking for verbs, what were they doing, but also is there any descriptors for either, any of the characters? So what do we, what do we see in terms of description? Degrading passions. Okay, and so it might be good, like, make sure as we say these that we see them, right? Whereas, that's at the very beginning, gave them over to degrading passions. Okay, that's the them. And what else? So from when I was thinking about the description also seemed to have a lot to do with what did they do? There's a lot of verbs there. So what was what we see as an action that God's taking? Okay. We see that God gave. Mm -hmm. And then uh, gave them over to the great impressions. The women what? Exchanged. So we see exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The men abandoned. abandoned. Okay, and 
burned, right, in their desire to one another. Um, men with men committing, committing in decent acts and receiving. receiving. Okay. And the receiving could be, um, you could possibly talk about that, describing, you know, receiving, you have a the active, the uh, direct and indirect object of the receiving. So God gave them over and they were receiving. Where was that? Very last word. Their error. Good catch. They erred. Okay, so then oftentimes there's comparisons, right? This versus that. So what comparison do we see? Natural function for that which is unnatural. Yeah, we can see it in the words themselves, natural versus unnatural in the same verse. Any other? Yeah. There's a big comparison when he's, he mentions in the same way. Okay. So he's it highlights the beginning of his thought and argument, and then jumps it into the end. And seems to be said, and if you look at previous and, and right after, it seems to say that the actions of the women and the actions of the men were in the same way, yeah. or depicting them as very similar. Okay. It kind of highlights the natural and natural idea again in 27 when it says the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and insert instead burned in their desire for one another. So this Right. It doesn't just say the men uh, exchange the natural function for which is the natural. It goes into greater detail. So what natural function are we talking about? It's the men abandoning the natural function of the woman and bring their desire with toward one another. Okay. So specifically talking about natural versus unnatural in terms of the sexual relationship. All right, proceeding. All right, so this is where we use context a little bit more. Okay. Um, what, let's go to Romans 1 because we don't have that in our passage. So maybe let's turn there and look. So this is where we're looking at what comes before and what comes after to try and again gain some insight. into what's going on. So it's always, um, it's never um, hard and fast necessarily rules, like how far back should you go to gain some context, but you want to look for um, how does this fit into the argument. So we're, we've been starting just here in verse um, 24. So let's maybe jump back. Does anybody would maybe go from 18 to 23? We want to read that passage. We're going to go look up what comes before. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Right. So it's kind of interesting, uh, in a sense, right? There's no mention of right, sexual morals or anything like that up until this point. And then we see, therefore, right? So what, what do we see? What are the themes, or what's going on? What can we observe about the previous <coughs> section? I'm making some observations there. 24. They ignored what was plain about God. Okay. Uh, verse 24 has the same phrase that God gave them up. As earlier you see where? As in 20, no, that's, that is the previous to 26. Oh, to 26. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, we didn't get far enough, did we? Oh, yes. You, 
That's right. I see what. I did kind of jump. No, no, no. That's right. Okay, so let's keep going. I was. I looked at the wrong. Gave them up. So therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then that's when we reach our. So that's kind of interesting. It kind of links together. We see some things in the 24 to 25 that connect us to the following passage, but also back to the original. Notice that in, you said that God gave them up, right? And it talks about in general um, to lusts of their hearts and to this impurity. It also links back in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator, right? So there's a, from uh, 21 and on, it talks about how they did not honor God or give thanks to them, but they became futile, their hearts were darkened. And again, in 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images. So there's this exchanging, a rejection of God and for the, the glory of the creation, the creatures, the created things. Starting in verse 18, he said the passage is about the wrath of God being revealed. For, for the wrath of God is revealed, it doesn't say will be revealed, it's how God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so when he's saying therefore, therefore, it's kind of explaining that this, this wrath that we're seeing. And it's interesting that, and I think we may see this in a minute, but verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived, so they're without excuse. So there's this idea that general creation, creation reveals these things about God, plain, obvious truths. Let's look at the passage after, okay? So... After it says the due penalty for their error. So somebody else want to read uh, from 28 uh, down to the end of the chapter, 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we see a third repeat of what in that passage? You saw it. It was repeated twice already. Yeah, God gave them up. And he goes on to list a whole slew of things that God gave them up to. And, you know, starting in verse 24, he, he gives this more general, right? Gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then gives this passage in 26 through 27 about the women with women and men with men. And then becomes even further developed in this longer list, right? So working from general to more specific to this longer explanation of this way in which God is giving these men and women up. Okay. So um, how does that inform maybe what the purpose is of the that passage that we've been looking about? Like, why was it written in that in that argument? Why why would maybe Paul include those verses about the women with women and with men? in this argument about God's wrath being revealed. It demonstrates that the people had kind of already foregone God's teaching. Or they weren't following him. They were exchanging the truth for a lie. They were exchanging mm -hmm. things. And God just lets them as part of Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a warning. Mm -hmm. 
there any, um, I think one thing I wonder is, it, he talks about clearly seeing through creation, and he talk, then he talks about that in verse 26. Um, like, mine's, mine's ESV, and it says, instead of exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, um, gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And so when you think about the created order, this idea of contrary to nature seems to be like an example. This is an example of a way in which men and women have rejected the order and the revealed nature and are living out a rejection of that, living in contrary to that. And who wrote this? Paul, how do we know? 1-1. One, one. That's right. Paul, a servant of Christ. Right? So, and who is Paul writing to? Yeah. So they're beloved in beloved of God and called a saint. So it's, right, these are Christians, these are believers that he's writing to. Okay. And how does it fit in the argument, right? Talk about this a little bit. Illustrating what it looks like for idol worship, idol worshippers to be handed over, right? And to place the true living God for manufactured idols, and God in return, well, if that's what you want, this is what you can have, and this is an illustration of how God handed them over. Yeah, yeah. the 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 point of the text, again, we saw it three times, is God is giving them over to these idolatrous um, desires. In, in response to their rejection of him. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things, right? Uh, when, when we ask, what don't you understand of the text, or what questions would maybe need to be answered? Um, you know, what was the cultural backdrop? So what was it like for Christians in Rome, right? We know it was written to all, all who are beloved of God in Rome, called to be saints. So here's a couple notes, either from a study Bible or a new Bible dictionary. So contrary to nature, in that it does not represent what God intended when he made men and women with physical bodies, to have a natural way of interacting with each other, and a natural desire for each other. Mm -hmm. So Paul's following the Old Testament and Jewish tradition in seeing that all homosexual relationships are sinful, the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, reveals the divine paradigm for human beings. And so this is one of those things where, you know, our, our study Bibles, our Bible dictionaries, oftentimes we, we um, don't, we're not accepting them as scriptural, but they are often useful because they point us back to the scriptures, right? That were pointed back to God's um, will for marriage revealed in Genesis 1 and 2, um, what would have been referred to as natural in those times. And then in Romans 1, Paul's condemning homosexual acts. He talks about um, lesbian as well as male in the same breath as idolatry. And it says his theological canvas is broader than that of Leviticus. So instead of treating homosexual behavior as an expression of idolatrous worship, he traces both the bad exchange um, that the fallen man has made to that root cause, right? That it's because of we're exchanging our the truth of God for a lie that we have this idolatrous worship. And it's not necessarily, I think we talked about an argument earlier that homosexuality sometimes was could be, um, some were arguing it was wrong because contrary to the nature of the person uh, or their own innate desires. Not That's not necessarily why, but because it infringes upon the Old Testament law but it flies in the face of God's creation scheme for human sexual expression. 
So kind of rooting everything back into God's design, the way he created man and woman to, to relate to one another. So I think, God, it, yeah. That's right. I think the, the, the other tools we talk about, I think it can be helpful, but we also want to be careful that the text is always the one that is giving us the final answer. Mm -hmm. um, because all those commentaries and things are also written from perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I say that because oftentimes the arguments that are being made to undermine what the Bible teaches actually aren't taking the text seriously enough. Okay. So like uh, most uh, many modern commentaries you'll read or bio back, uh, backgrounds or dictionary things will we'll talk about, well, this is uh, men sleeping with their slaves. So it's actually an abusive relationship mm -hmm. dynamic. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll reinterpret Romans saying mm -hmm. that's the actual background. Mm -hmm. The problem is the text itself says that they burn with passion for one another. There's an equality of the relationship mm -hmm. in the text. Mm -hmm. And so it actually undermines the art they're trying to make. Saying that, well, historical context is different, yeah. but the text is actually part of the historical context. So all I have to say that as we, as we use these tools, but be careful, one, they actually believe the Bible, mm -hmm. that they're writing those tools. And then also the text itself, we have, we have access to this text directly, and we mm -hmm. need to actually evaluate the tools themselves mm -hmm. if they don't seem to match up with what the text is clearly saying. Yeah. So we can't just release ourselves to the study notes of a Bible, mm -hmm. even the MacArthur Study Bible. Like we have to do the hard work of actually wrestling with the text. Right. And oftentimes that helps us to know. Uh, it's kind of difficult because you, when you find run across, likely, no matter which commentary or commentator you use, you're going to run across, across places where that doesn't seem consistent with the text. Mm -hmm. yeah. And being able to say, I'm okay with them being right in these other areas. I'm not going to reject everything they've said because they were wrong. Right? Realizing that they can all be imperfect and have wrong. Yeah, I think if you study the Bible and you kind of have like an analysis that you have of the biblical text, you need to have that same outlook towards the resources that you use. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's why like using multiple commentaries or study Bibles is often can be pretty helpful if you see mm -hmm. some significant disagreement between the two. Mm -hmm. um, it should be like maybe an alert that, okay, I need to drill down a little bit deeper in this issue mm -hmm. because there seems to be something going on here, right? Yeah, and, and I think it's something that if, if, you're getting, if you're in a discussion trying to either internally yeah. or with another believer about what a text means, um, it should concern us if we or the other person relies on that kind of an argument of authority that this yeah. person, this is their view. Yeah. Um, well, why do they, right, where does the text, what are they using the text to support that? Yeah. The notes are not the answer key. Yeah, yeah, very true. And oftentimes they can, you know, um, sometimes a good, um, there's, there's differences. Some, some uh, commentators are like some, uh, will, uh, some commentators will give a diversity of opinions and say, the text can be interpreted in these two or three ways, and these are the scriptural references that tend to support these different views to help you further along your study. Okay, let me go read those texts. Let me go read those texts and see what is it that the, the text seems to be saying. And we've talked about before that not to be alarmed if you don't have a super clear, definitive answer. Right? Sometimes it takes time and a lot of effort. and uh, Sometimes you may not have a, a clear answer that just comes right away. I think that this, this question uh, seems to come up because there, it, in one sense I would say, you know, there's a, there's a certain uh, vagueness, right? In what sense are they receiving the penalty for their error? So it's, I think it's good to ask as many questions as you can about the text. And it's okay if you can't find the answer right there. Um, it could refer to homosexuality itself. Um, we're not really sure what what it means, but all we know is they are receiving the dual, 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 the due penalty. We know that God's wrath is being revealed against them, so we know in a sense, um, but is, is there something else that they're referring to here, or do they have something specific in mind? Yeah. I think one thing about um, unclear questions is that I think it's good to remember that um, we ought to focus on where the Bible is the clearest, and we ought not to emphasize, overemphasize places where the Bible is not explicitly clear, and it's okay to ask those questions, but to make it a prime 
uh, make it of prime importance and would seem to be misplaced. Yeah. I think a lot of times people convolute the Bible like in the intro to the study is all these all this extra information had to be supplied to the reader so that this text does not mean what it says. Yeah. And so there there is kind of a danger in relying too much on background and assumptions and somebody else telling you this is how the culture understood it mm -hmm. uh, when the text seems to be plainly grading against that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, we're not, I don't think we're saying that we ought not to look, research all that information but it ought to always come back and all the weight needs to rest upon the yeah. text itself. Mm -hmm. right, that we're giving different weights to any other and if at any time that um, additional background contradicts the text at some point, we know that what to reject. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to give a, a short interpretation here. After answering all these questions, right, reflecting on the meaning of the text, Paul's letter to the Romans, he's discussing how the wrath of God has been revealed and is revealed, uh, which rejects him for the worship of idols. A studying example of this rejection is found in the sin of homosexuality where adherents replace the natural worship of God for unnatural sexual relations. And in response, as part of this, um, one reason that they are doing this, right, God is giving them over to their consuming passions. They're living in this perpetual alienation from God on account of their sin. And so, you know, a big theme of that first part of Romans is just establishing, you know, the the sinfulness of all mankind. And he's developing the argument. He continues to develop the argument of God's judgment, his, the law, our sinfulness, all the way through chapters 2, chapters 3. And uh, so it's, a, it's one part of a larger, larger argument. So what are we on now? What, what point are we on? We've, did, we've done receive. We did read, reflecting. What are we doing? Relate. Relating. All right. So Ezra again, right? So it's the same verse, right? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and what? Practice it. And practice it. To teach his stat and to teach his statutes. So it wasn't just intellectual knowledge. In the words of Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division, soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? And so this is where sometimes um, we can get really close to like the purpose of scriptures. And we we're ready to receive it. We want to we read it. We study it. And we know what it says. And if we stop there, right, we've fallen short of the purpose of the word. Right? It's not just to give us a knowledge. Right? But that knowledge should actually transform our lives and who we are. Um, and so when you when we think about this, right, here's three more questions that we didn't talk about earlier, but more broad questions, right? What does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about how God relates to us, to man? And what does it reveal about how man relates to God? Okay. So when we misapply what a text says, uh, there's some, I think, humorous examples here. Um, right? We can have some, some, quite a few things go wrong. We've got the girl at Philadelphia about, are these true stories? According to what I read. According to, a girl at Philadelphia Bible College miserably flunked an exam. The professor called her in and asked why. I read the verse that says, the spirit will give you in that day what you shall say. So I did not feel that I needed to study. <laughs> the Dallas Morning News on March of 64 ran the story of one who was one of the four candidates for governor of Texas in the Democratic primary. She was convinced the Bible told her she would win. She received an official list of names from the Texas State Democratic Committee, and her name was printed last. She read in her Bible the words of Matthew 19.30, Many that are first shall be last, and the last first. That was enough for her. Right? By the way, she did end up losing the election. We don't know if she finished first or last or where in the actual order she was. Um, 
But when we're considering our passage, right, what does it reveal? So we'll ask these three questions just in general. We've looked at our interpretation. Um, what does the passage reveal about God? When we look at that passage. The Romans 1 passage. Is a judge? Uh, I see God's authority in this. If God's the one who can give some give someone up, then mm-hmm. he's he has the authority to authority. do so. Mm-hmm. I think I was interesting that not only did he, um, right, we see him actively causing judgment, right? That his wrath is revealed. He's not one that will hold back his wrath without ever. Expressing that wrath. Okay. Kind of within the realm of being judged, but he defines what is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. It's very clear in this passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time is almost up. Maybe we'll talk about how God relates to man next time. I think we got one more. All right, let's stop there. Good discussion today. And uh, next time we'll probably finish up. We'll talk about thought questions and some more application. So let me pray for us as we go on and continue. Lord, I thank you for this morning and a great discussion that we had. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates and enlightens our heart and our mind to understand your word. I pray that as we come to you, that your spirit would continually uh, speak to us, uh, give us a mind and a spirit to understand and receive the word. I pray that we would give forth the effort, that you give us the ability and the desire to study your word in a way that we determine and understand what it says. I just thank you for the many, many tools that we have that allow us to reach the understanding of the word, not only different texts, but believers of past and present who endeavor to do the same. I pray that we would always build one another up as we point one another to you and to your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.